Hey everybody, it's Andy. Welcome to our church podcast. As you know, we want to help you get the most out of the new year. So we've come up with a way to help you engage with our content in a unique way. It's called 90 because believe it or not, there are 90 days between January 1st and Easter. So over these 90 days, we're going to journey through the life of Jesus every Sunday and then give you a chance to dive in deeper during the week through two additional connecting points designed to challenge and perhaps change you. To find out how you can get connected and sign up for the additional content, just go to 90.today. That's 90.today, 90.today. Well, the following presentation is actually part of the 90-day content, and I hope it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Here we go. So um, I've told you before, I've, we have th- Sandra and I have three kids, are all in their 20s now, which is wonderful. So we parented babies and children and middle schoolers and high schoolers and college students and first jobbers and boyfriends and girlfriends and all the stuff. And um, when we first started, when we first had Andrew, um, you know, you're, you're, you're nervous and you're trying to figure out what are we going to do? You know, so um, I had worked with high school students for 10 to 12 years before I became a pastor, like a real pastor. And so I saw all kinds of family stuff and I decided, okay, we're not going to do it that way. So when we had Andrew um, and our kids were old enough to have rules, we decided, or I decided, I said, in our house, we're just going to have two rules, just two rules, um, honor mom and tell the truth. Honor mom and tell the truth. I'd tell my kids all the time, the worst thing you can do is tell a lie. The worst thing you can do is tell a lie. The worst thing you can do is tell a lie. And one day I'm driving and Andrew's in the back seat and he's in the car seat and or, um, he and his big boy buckled up seat. And he said, dad, I think I know something worse than telling a lie. I'm like, what? Because in our house, the worst thing you can do is tell a lie. Because if you tell a lie, it breaks the relationship. You know, it's all this preacher stuff, you know. Um, he said, I think I know something worse than telling a lie. I said, what? He said, worshiping the devil. So we added a third rule. <laughs> Honor mom, don't tell, you know, tell the truth and never worship. Anyway, so we just had these two rules because here's what I knew that, you know what? If you, if you cover the basic things, they, that pretty much takes care of everything. And in family life, those two basic things covered just about everything. Now, today in our journey with Jesus, Jesus does something similar, but he takes it even a step further. If you haven't been with us, we're in a series where we are following Jesus from his introduction to the world to the day that he became the savior of the world. And we've said throughout this series that Jesus was not an and, Jesus was an instead of, that he came to this place to replace everything that was pretty much in place. He came to introduce something extraordinarily brand spanking new. He came to introduce, as we talked about last time we were together, a new covenant, a new kind of relationship between God and mankind. He came to institute the new command, basically the fine print of the new covenant that we'll talk about in a few minutes. And then he left his new movement, us, the church. And throughout his time with his guys and throughout his three-year journey uh, in Galilee and in Judea and in that part of the world, he would drop hints throughout. He would say things like this. You've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. And his audience would say, yeah, we've heard it said. That's what our parents said. That's what their parents said. That's what Moses said. Who do you think you are? And Jesus would smile and say, just keep and attention. He claimed to be greater than the temple. Well, if you're greater than the temple, then we don't need the temple. But if we're not going to have a temple, what are we going to have? What are you talking about? He insisted that the great people go to the back of the line. 
And then in a religious system, in a religious system that valued cleanliness, physical cleanliness, Jesus insisted that the people who had the holiest hearts oftentimes had the dirtiest hands. And Jesus would touch unclean people and he made them well. He made them new. It was an indication that something new was on the horizon. But of course, his upside down value system, his kingdom that was not of this world would be in conflict with the kingdoms of this world. Conflict was inevitable. And that's where we left off last time. The last couple of times we've been together in this journey, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover with his guys. And when the religious leaders heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, they put spies out everywhere. The text says that the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. And it turns out that Jesus was easy to find, but he was not easy to arrest because everywhere he went, there was a crowd. In fact, as he came to Jerusalem, people lined the streets outside the city. We know they lined the streets inside the city. The text says that the great crowd that had come for Passover heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And the intensity built and the excitement built because they assumed that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem to do something for the nation. But in fact, Jesus was coming to Jerusalem to do something for you and for the entire world. And then something unusual happened. One of Jesus' closest followers broke rank. Judas got tired of waiting. It dawned on Judas as they made their way to Jerusalem. Wait a minute. He's not going in there to become the Messiah. I think he's going to go in there and surrender. All this talk of the first shall be last and last shall be first. And and, and it finally dawned on Judas. This is not going the way he always thought it would and assumed it would. And it was time for him to get out but he wanted to get out with something to show. So he broke away from the group to run an errand. He went and found the chief priest and he went to the chief priest and said, you want Jesus? I can get you Jesus and I can get you Jesus when he's not surrounded by a crowd. They agreed and they paid him. And the text says that he watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over when no crowd was present. And in the end, their plan would succeed, but their objective would not be met. Because unlike them and unlike me and perhaps unlike you, Jesus did not cling to his life. All along, he had come to give it away. But before that moment, before he sacrificed himself for the world, there were two loose ends that he needed to wrap up. So first, as they gathered for Passover with the guys, the first thing he did was declare that he was establishing a new kind of relationship between God and all mankind, between God and God's image-bearing rebel race. And so in the upper room, as they prepared and as they celebrated Passover, Jesus changed the tone and Jesus changed the meaning of Passover. And he said, okay, I know you've been at this way since you were little boys, but from now on, when you gather for Passover, you're not gonna remember Egypt and you're not gonna remember Moses. You're going to remember me and this bread that always meant one thing from now on. It means it represents my body and this wine that represented the blood of the lamb that our, you know, ancestors put over the doorpost from now on, it's going to represent my blood and I'm establishing a new covenant in my blood. And this signaled the end. And this is such a big, big, big idea that has, that we miss so easily. This signaled the end of God's conditional covenant with the nation of Israel. And it signaled the beginning of a permanent, unilateral, unconditional covenant with all mankind. A new relational 
arrangement. But just like contracts, modern contracts come with fine print, just like modern contracts come with terms and conditions, so covenants, ancient covenants came with, with fine print. They came with terms and conditions. And this new arrangement between God and man would require new terms and new conditions. These would replace the terms and conditions of the old covenant. And the thing is, Jesus' closest followers should have seen this coming because all along the way, all along the way, he hinted at the fact that something new was coming, something big was coming, and it wasn't gonna be an and, it was gonna be an instead of, that he had come to replace, again, much of everything that was currently in place. For example, months before his gathering for Passover in Jerusalem with disciples, about 10 or 11 months before that occasion, Jesus was moving through villages and towns teaching, and they're, again, sort of dropping breadcrumbs all along the way, pointing to what was coming. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law were constantly following him. They were constantly trying to trap him and constantly trying to separate him from the crowd. So on one particular afternoon, they joined forces and they drew straws to see who would go first because they wanted to trap Jesus with his words in order to embarrass him in front of the crowd, separate him from the crowd so that he would lose the crowd so that they could ultimately arrest and get rid of Jesus. So here's what happens. This is you know months and months before the, uh, the events of Passover. The text says that then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap Jesus with his words, but they didn't go themselves. They would be recognized. So they sent their disciples, their underlings, and they gave them a very, very specific question. We want you to go sit in the crowd, blend in with the crowd. When Jesus gets to the Q and A part after his talk, you raise your hand and we want you to ask a specific question. And if you ask it correctly, you might be the one that traps and trips up the teacher, the rabbi from Nazareth. And so here's what they said. They said, teacher, First, they buttered him up. Teacher, they said, we know that you're a man of integrity, that you are teaching the ways of God in accordance with the truth. And Jesus, we know that you, like most people, you are not swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. We, you know, and Jesus sees this coming. And then once he, they get him all buttered up and they think he's leaning in and they think he's vulnerable, they ask him an IRS question. Seriously, Jesus responds with a coin trick and he sends them scurrying back to their handlers. So the Pharisees are sitting in the back of the crowd. Their guys come back. They've embarrassed themselves. The Sadducees say, we're up next. And so the Sadducees approach Jesus, blend into the crowd, Q&A, stand up. And one of the Sadducees asked this question, teacher, they said, um, Moses told us, because they were always trying to divide the people around the idea that Jesus was against Moses and Jesus stood in contrast to Moses. So now Jesus, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, now follow this, if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow, his wife, and raise up offspring for him. Now, if you are ever tempted to embrace the Old Testament and live by the Old Testament, this law in and of itself is a reason not to, okay? When you think about the implications of this. And by the way, the New Testament says, if you're gonna do any of the law, you gotta do the whole thing. And this is probably illegal for, you know, in, in some capacity, especially if you're already married. But the idea, well, this, was a, this was a good law in ancient times because women were so vulnerable. So if a woman's husband died and she didn't have any children, the, her husband's name wouldn't be carried on. There would be no one to take care of her. So this was a good law. So her husband's brother would then have to marry her. He'd have multiple wives and then produce children through her so that her, his brother's name could be carried on. So it wasn't, it wasn't a, a bad thing, this was, but this was a law. So they tell Jesus, the law. Jesus already knew all this. And then they turn it into a riddle of sorts. 
Now, there were among us, there were seven brothers among us. They're just making this up. There were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. So then they get married, the husband dies, the wife marries the brother. And then they say, and then the second brother died and she married the third brother. And then the third brother died and she married the fourth brother. And then the fourth brother died and she married the fifth brother. The fifth brother died, she married the sixth brother. The sixth brother died and she married the seventh brother. And then the seventh brother died. And then she died. Now every riddle has a question at the end. So here's the question. So when she got to heaven, who was she married to? And the crowd was like, wow, that's a good question. <laughs> Who would she be married to in heaven? Wow. Now, the point of their question was to show how ridiculous it was to believe in an afterlife because the Sadducees did not believe in any afterlife. That's why they were sad, you see. <laughs> yes. Okay. So they believed that we all, aren't you glad you came to church today and you're glad you're watching the things you learned? Yes. Yeah, so they believed that we lived for the, ple- we, that mankind, womankind, we live for the pleasure of God. And when our lives are over, they're over. And that's okay because we live for the pleasure of God, not for ourselves. So they were just showing how ridiculous it was that there was an afterlife, which offended the Pharisees and was contrary to what Jesus taught. So they ask him this trick question and Jesus smiles and he tells, says to them the thing they hated when he said, he said, have you not read the scriptures? Well, they're thinking that's pretty much all we do is read. He said, have you not read the scriptures? Then he skips over Moses, goes to Abraham, makes an incredible point based on the tense of a verb and sends them scurrying off to their handlers as well. And the crowd goes wild. They love it when Jesus humiliates the hypocritic uh, religious leaders who were constantly putting a burden on them that they weren't willing to carry themselves. Here's what the text says. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. And hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees decide to reload. So they sent their guys in. That didn't work. The Sadducees went in. Now the Pharisees have reloaded. They've got a really good question. They are sure this is the one that's going to trip him up. And they choose one of their best guys. He's actually a lawyer to blend into the crowd, wait for Q&A, raise his hand and ask his question. Now, this question is a question you've probably heard before if you were raised in church. But this is an extraordinary moment in Jesus' teaching ministry, and he uses it to point to what is about to come. Here's what happened. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him. So he wasn't there sincerely. He was, this was part of the setup. Tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the whole law? Again, the law of Moses. Which is the greatest commandment in all the laws that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai? Which is the greatest commandment? Now, everybody in Jesus' audience pretty much knew the answer to this question because there was a standard Sunday school answer to this question. But Jesus saw this as an opportunity to point the way forward to where he was eventually taking all of his followers. And Jesus replied, and everybody in Jesus' audience, for the most part, could have mouthed along with Jesus the answer to this question, because this, there was a stock standard theological answer to this question. Because this wasn't, the, this wasn't the lawyer's real question. He had a question behind the question. And once he got Jesus to commit himself to the standard answer, he had a zinger that was going to you know, knock Jesus back on the ropes, or so he thought. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Everybody's like, yeah, we know this. With all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the lawyer is about to ask his second question. And Jesus says, and? And the lawyer's like, no, 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 don't don't and. If you and, that's gonna mess this thing up. Because see, that was the setup. Then I got my question and Jesus is like, and? And the second 
is like it. The second is like it. The second is equal to it. This is important. The second is second in sequence. It is not second in greatness. The second law is just as great as the first law. They go together. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is the first time in all of recorded history that anyone that we know of took a verse from Deuteronomy and this verse from Leviticus and put them together in this way. The the two greatest commandments are love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And this signaled a very important shift, a shift that Jesus had been signaling all along, but this was a big clue. This signaled a shift when it came to religion, that things were shifting from a vertical orientation to a horizontal orientation. In the religious world in which Jesus lived, in the religious world, perhaps, in which you were raised, A person could love God and treat people poorly. A person could claim to be good with God and mistreat other people. And when they were confronted, they'd say, oh no, God and I are good. I've confessed my sins. I go to church. I'm in ministry. I serve. Yeah, but you, do you, do you see how you're treating your wife? Look how you, look up, listen to the way you talk to your son. Listen to the way that you respond to people at work. I know, but me and God are good. This was the religion of the first century. My friends, this was every religion of pretty much every century. And Jesus says something new is on the horizon. That is about to change with me. And then he says this, all the law and the prophets, all the law and the prophets. Now law and the prophets in the first century, that meant Bible. That's their Old Testament scripture. They didn't have a, the Bible that, that came later, but they would call their, their scripture, they would call it the law and the prophets. This was Genesis all the way basically through Malachi. There was no formal canon yet, but basically these are all the sacred scriptures. So Jesus says, your entire sacred body of literature, your entire Bible hangs on these two commands. Now, if Jesus had had a screen at that point, I think this is what he would have shown them next. It would look like this. He'd say, love God, love your neighbor. All of your Old Testament prophets and all of your Old Testament law and all of your Jewish scripture hang on these two things. If you're reading along in Isaiah and you get confused, just go back to here. If you're reading along in Daniel and you kind of get confused, just, just go back here. This is the starting point. Everything else is history, explanation, and commentary. In other words, love for God, this is his point, love for God is best illustrated, demonstrated, and authenticated by love for others. And in this moment, Jesus reduces all of the Jewish commands to two big ideas that he says are equal in value, but he wasn't through. The problem at this point is that for a first century Jewish person, a neighbor had a definition and a neighbor was another Jew. In fact, Leviticus 19.18 that says, love your neighbor as yourself. It actually in that passage defines what a neighbor is. And a neighbor is another Jewish person. So Jesus takes it a step further. Many weeks later, he's in a similar situation and another lawyer comes and asks him another trick question. And in response to that question, Jesus changes the definition of neighbor for every generation and in every nation. And he tells the story, the parable of the good Samaritan. And at the end of this parable, at the end of this parable, he answers the question, who is my neighbor? And he changes the definition of neighbor. And from this point forward, Jesus says, the new definition for neighbor is not simply another Jew, not someone who's like you and not someone you like. From now on, a neighbor is anyone anywhere with a need that you 
can meet. This was new indeed. That now love for God, love for God is best illustrated, demonstrated, and authenticated by love for those who are nothing like you and may not even like you. This was so new, but unbeknownst to his audience, these are breadcrumbs. Unbeknownst to his audience, these are all signs pointing in a specific direction, hinting at the new terms and the new conditions for the new covenant. And then he chose Passover as the moment for the official reveal. They just finished the meal. We talked about that last time we were together. They just finished the meal. Then he humiliates them by washing their feet. They are so off balance. Then suddenly Judas gets up and leaves with no explanation. And then Jesus, having replaced Moses as the covenant maker, because Moses was the one that established the covenant between God and the nation of Israel. And now Jesus has just established a brand new covenant between God and all mankind, even though they didn't understand it at the time. Now Jesus not only takes on the role as covenant maker, now Jesus steps into the role as law giver. And the new covenant, the new covenant, like the one that he just replaced, would have its own set of thou shalt and thou shalt not, but not 600 and not even two. This is one of the most important moments in the life of Jesus. And it's heartbreaking to me that for centuries and centuries and centuries, it has been so underplayed and given such little emphasis because what happens next would ultimately change the world. Jesus says to his guys, again, who had no idea the significance of these words. He says, gentlemen, I now give you a new command. Now, if they'd been thinking straight, they'd say, wait, 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 Jesus, Jesus, you can't give us any new commands. Okay. Only God gives commands. You know, the story, Moses went up to Mount Sinai. God gave Moses the law. Moses brought it back down. So Moses delivered the law, but Moses didn't originate the law. So Jesus, okay. If you're saying that you're giving us a new command once again, and you do this all the time, it's as if you're stepping in between us and God. It's like you're playing the role of God. Who do you think you are? Are, I think we're sort of getting the idea of who you think you are, and that's disturbing to us. But Jesus said, I'm gonna give you a new command, and to which they might have said, okay, but we don't need any more commands. We have enough besides. Okay, besides, you've already reduced 600 plus to two. So now there's like a third command. There's like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you can't be with the one you love, love, that's probably not it. So what, you know, what is the third command? Maybe three's good. I mean, 10's a lot, 600's a lot. You gave us two, three's the perfect number. So you're gonna give us like the third command to go with the other two. Is that what we're doing? But Jesus had not come to add to. Jesus had come to take from. Jesus had come to reduce even two to one. If the church gets this right, everything changes. A new command I give you, love one another. To which they thought, that's not new. To which Jesus would have said, I'm not through. <laughs> There's a stipulation. As I have loved you, oh, so you must love one another. And in this moment, he could have gone around the room from person to person to person to person, and perhaps he did and no one recorded it. 
Because he could have paused at this moment and says, as I've loved you, you must love one another. Matthew, you remember when we met? Yes, sir. You remember what you were doing? Yes, sir. Say it out loud. I was a tax farmer. I was a tax collector. Mm -hmm. And do you remember when we met? Do you remember what I said to you? Yes, sir. You invited me to follow you. And Peter would have spoken up and said, I remember I was not happy. In fact, none of us were happy about Matthew following you because if Matthew follows you, he trails around with us and it's embarrassing. Jesus like Matthew. Remember where we went after I asked you to follow me? Yes, sir. We went to my house. Peter's like, I remember that Peter. (laughs) Matthew. For the rest of your life, the grace I extended to you that day, I want you to extend that to every single person you meet for the rest of your life. Matthew, it's not the golden rule. We're stepping it up. As I have loved you, that's how you're to love other people. Nathaniel, yes, sir. You remember when we met? Yes, sir. Remember what you said about my hometown, my parents, my stickball team, all my friends? Nazareth, Nazareth. What good thing could come from Nazareth? Do you remember that, Nathaniel? Yes, sir. Do you remember how I responded? Yes, sir. You invited me to be one of your closest followers. That's right, Nathaniel. I want you to extend that same kind of grace and that same kind of acceptance to everyone you meet, regardless of how they treat you. Guys, you remember that afternoon that I didn't have my best day? I will admit it. When I preached that sermon about drinking my blood and eating my flesh and people got nervous because they couldn't go with the illustration and people started leaving. You remember that afternoon? You guys were all sitting around looking at me like you're paying attention, but I saw you glancing off to the side. We started losing the crowd that day. Do you remember that, guys? John, you do. You wrote it down, right? We remember. (laughs) And do you remember how I responded when I busted you? Do you remember, Peter? I, I, I looked at you guys and said, you don't want to go too, do you? And you were smart enough not to lie to me because that, by that time you knew I would know you're lying. Remember when I said, do you want to go too? Because I knew every single one of you, every single one of you, in spite of all I've done for you, every single one of you wanted to blend into the crowd and disappear. Do you remember that day? Yes, sir. Do you remember how I responded? You wanted to unfollow me, but I never chose to unfollow you and I never brought it up. That's how I want you to treat each other and the people that you meet for the rest of your life. And this is just the Passover meal. You know what he could have said? And guys, you think you've seen love? You ain't seen nothing yet. Two days from now, three days from now, four days from now, I'm gonna take this to a whole nother level and I want you to remember this night because your responsibility is to love other people the way that I have loved and, and, and am about to love you. By this one thing, by this one thing, by this one thing, everyone will know that you are my disciple if you love one another. Not if you love me because I'm leaving. Not if you love God, nobody knows. If you love one another. His point being that your love for me and your love for your heavenly father will be demonstrated by how well you love each other and how well you love the people that are difficult to love. And compared to the extraordinarily complicated system of laws that they had grown up with, this was far, far, far less complicated, but it was far more demanding. Now, let me try to illustrate why. And I would rather this not leave the room, okay? So this is just between us. 
If you give me a list of rules, I can find a loophole. In fact, the more rules you give me, the more space there is and the more potential for loopholes, right? And it's not just me. If I give you a list of rules, you can find a loophole. If you're a parent and you have parented through the middle school years, you get this. If you can remember middle school, you get this. Well, mom, you didn't say exactly. Well, dad, you said to be home, but you didn't say where at home. Dad, you said I couldn't play, but you didn't say, you didn't say, in other words, you didn't give me the fight, dad. You know, you're gonna have to spell this out. We're gonna have to have tiny print anytime you ever say anything to me because dad, I'm 12 years old, I'm 13 years old. I'm gonna find a loophole because where there are rules, plural, there is space. There are cracks. In fact, it's worse than that. And this is the part I really don't want you to tell anybody. If you give me a Bible and I get to use the whole Bible, I can find a loophole for just about anything you wanna do, especially if I get to use the first half. Because some of the people who wrote the songs we sing on Sunday did some horrible things. One of them was a man after God's own heart. Well, there you go. This is is why, you know, people like me get questions like this all the time. You've asked this question or some question like it. Well, what does the Bible say about? Because I want to do A. Does the Bible say anything's wrong with A? Because I want to do A. And if the Bible doesn't say A specifically, okay, that's not exactly, okay, that's that's like B. I'm, I'm asking about A, so I'm good to go, right? Is there anything wrong with, does the Bible say there's anything wrong with all those questions? I mean, I understand what's behind the questions, but often what's behind the question is, look, this is what I want to do. And I don't want to do anything that God's absolutely against, but if he doesn't spell it out specifically, am I good to go? And the answer is give me a Bible and I can find you an opportunity to be good to go because give me a list of rules, give you a list of rules. You'll find a loophole. You'll find some wiggle room. Jesus walked into a religious environment where the religious leaders were professional loophole creators and the hypocrisy was overwhelming and it drove people away from the very God that had created them to worship him. New covenant love, new covenant love. The new covenant command closes all the loopholes because there's only one command. You can't slide in between them. There's not a, mm. it's just one. This was the brilliance of Jesus. Besides, after all, I'm not always sure what to believe. I'm not always sure who to believe, but I almost always know what love requires of me. The old covenant question was this question. What does the law require? The modern version of the old covenant covenant question is, what does the Bible require? The new covenant question, the Jesus question is, what does love require of me? And here's something our middle school students and our high school students and our college students need to know. And here's something we all need to know. But here's something that has to become more foundational in the teaching of the church is simply this, that every New Testament imperative, I mean, imperative is like a command, right? Every New Testament imperative, every New Testament imperative, especially those that follow the resurrection, every New Testament imperative is simple, imperative is simply an application of this new covenant command. 
In other words, the New Testament is not full of a bunch of rules. The New Testament is full of one rule with hundreds or dozens rather of applications. In other words, if we had a new chart, it would look like this. Love just as I've loved you and everything else is explanation. Everything else is application. Everything else is history. Everything else is background. Everything else is commentary. To which you say, it can't possibly be that simple. Yes, it can because the savior of the world waited until the time was right to deliver this final blow to our ego and this final blow to our selfishness and this final blow to that thing in me and the thing in you you that wants to have my way but wants to justify it because I found a gap. I found a loophole. I'll tell you who saw this. We miss it. The church misses it. Preachers miss it. But I'll tell you who didn't miss it. The apostle Paul, the first church planter, he did not miss this. The apostle Paul applied this one New Testament, new covenant command to everything. Here's a few examples. He wrote this, you've heard this before. Be kind and be compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Well, should I forgive? Yes, because the Bible says so. Paul says, what's a Bible? Oh yeah, you didn't have a Bible. So Paul, are we supposed to be kind and compassionate because you told us to be kind and compassionate? Paul's like, are you kidding? No. Well, Paul, why should we be kind and compassionate? Paul says, oh, well, let me finish the statement. Just as, two of the most powerful words in the New Testament, and you find them throughout his letters. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. Well, why should I forgive? Because the Bible says forgive. No, you forgive because you're forgiven. Why should I be patient? Why should I be patient with her? Why should I be kind? He's not kind to me. Why should I be patient with her? She's not patient with me. Why should I be kind? Why should I be patient? Show me the verse. Paul would say, what's a verse? Oh yeah, they didn't have those yet. Paul would say, no, here's why you should be patient. Here's why you should be kind. Because love is patient, he wrote. And love is kind. And those are your marching orders. Love does not dishonor others. Here essentially, love does not dishonor. Here essentially is the core ingredient of the New Testament sexual ethic. You never do anything to dishonor another person, even if it's consensual, if you were a Jesus follower. Well, is there any verses in there? I don't have a verse. Honor him, honor her, honor her husband, honor his, honor his wife, honor his children, honor her future relationship, honor his future marriage. You put other people first. You don't need a verse. Love is the mandate. Love is the command. There is no wiggle room. There's no space to cheat. There is no loophole. It is so uncomplicated. It's so extraordinarily compelling. Paul goes on, he says this, he says this, in your relationships, oh yeah, tell us about relationships. In fact, I'd like to do an eight-week series on relationships, Andy. If you just do an eight-week series on relationships, you can, you know, Paul would say, you don't need eight weeks. In your relationships with one another, just have the same mindset as, as Christ Jesus. You don't need a series. You need a three-by-five card and just put this somewhere. That when you're wondering how to respond to your husband, you go, oh yeah, I'm to respond to my husband the way that God through Christ responded to me when I was an idiot and when I wasn't honest and when I was insecure and when I did the wrong thing and when I you know, was trying to cover for myself. That's it. I mean, you don't need a series. You just ask, okay, what did God through Christ do for me? That's what I'm supposed to do for other people. Then here's another one, okay? This is the church in Ephesus. Paul writes, follow, this is kind of mushy. You wanna hear some, you know, you feel like you're gonna hear a love song in the background. Follow God's example, therefore. Is dearly loved children walk in the, the way of love. The way of love, it sounds so romantic. Paul, what do you mean the way of love? Oh yeah, let me, let me explain. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up 
for us. Oh, that sounds hard. Yeah, there's no loophole. There are loopholes in romance. There are no loopholes in this kind of love. Again, I could go on and on and on and on and on. Paul does not give Christians a bunch of things to do. Paul gives Christians a bunch of applications for Jesus' New Testament command, his new covenant command, which was simple. As I've loved you, so are you, so you are to love one another. That's it. That's the one commandment. That's it. This is the fine print of the new covenant. These are the terms and these are the conditions. This is the overarching ethical um, uh, move. This is the, sort of the overarching ethic for Jesus' brand new movement, the church. This is, you've heard of the Ark of the Covenant. This is the Mark of the Covenant. And his first century followers got it. In fact, his first century followers got it. Their others' firstness, their willingness to put other people before themselves in, the, in a culture that you know, recognized and embraced violence, it was absolutely appalling. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. In a culture that worshiped victory and strength, the idea of putting other people first seems so weak, but this upside down kingdom that Jesus introduced, eventually it became appealing. And then eventually it became contagious and it circled the globe. And we are here today because a group of first century Christians got this. And against all odds, and I mean against all odds, sandwiched between the temple and the Roman empire with no territory, no authority, no military, they survived and they thrived and they were fueled by this single idea. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my follower. By this one thing, people will know that you're my follower. If you love one another. You see, when we get this right, people want to work for us, even though they don't want to believe like us. When we get this right, people want us to work for them, even if they don't believe like us. When you get this right, people are so happy there's a new church in town. When we get this right, people are so happy that their daughter or their son is dating a Christian. I mean, they believe some interesting things, but my goodness, the way they treat people. What a night that was for those guys. I mean, they showed up thinking, oh, we're gonna have Passover. And when the night's over, I mean, their heads are spinning. Okay, we're not doing Passover anymore. You made this all about you. That's weird. And then you like canceled out Moses' whole covenant, everything we grew up with. And you put a, there's gonna be a new covenant and it's in your blood. But Jesus, I checked, you're not even bleeding. What, what does that even mean? And it's not gonna be, the, the bread's gonna be your body, but your body isn't broken. And then you washed our feet. That was like the worst moment of my life. I was so embarrassed. And then Judas left. And now you've decided you're the lawgiver and there's just one law. I mean, their heads are spinning. They, they, there's no way for them to understand what had just happened. And Jesus says, okay, I, I'd like to go now and pray. Let's go to the garden that we are, where we always pray. Oh, Gethsemane, let's go to Gethsemane. It's dark, people won't see us moving through the streets. Try to be quiet, let's go to Gethsemane. So I mean, they're murmuring and whispering as they make their way to Gethsemane. What in the world's going on? I, thought, I mean, we haven't even really celebrated Passover. He, he changed all the terms. He, he changed all the rules. It's so confusing. And they get to the garden. Jesus says, you pray here. I'm gonna go pray by myself. He checks on them, they're asleep. He wakes them up, he prays. He checks on them, they're asleep. And then Judas shows up. And the text says he showed up with a large cohort probably several hundred people, several hundred temple henchmen, several hundred guards from the temple. And Jesus is arrested. 
and his 11 followers flee for their lives. He's taken to Caiaphas' home for trial. None of his guys show up to be witnesses. There are other witnesses testifying to things that Jesus never said and that Jesus never did, but the guys who had been there the whole time who could have told the truth, they don't show up for the trial. And then they hear that Jesus has been taken to Pilate. And that can only mean one thing. Because any other punishment that the religious leaders would want to inflict on Jesus, they had the right to do. The only reason they would need Pilate is that they wanted Jesus put to death. So when the guys heard that Jesus had been taken to Pilate's palace, they knew it was over. And they knew they were probably next. And so we will pick it up there next week. Well, once again, thanks for listening. If you'd like some bonus content on this message and all the messages that we're doing between now and Easter, I want to invite you again to go to 90.today. That's 90.today and sign up. At 90.today, you'll find a host of different ways to engage deeper with our church and the extraordinary life of Jesus. We'll see you next time.